This Coin Week podcast is brought to you by PCGS. Are you a banknote collector? PCGS is proud to announce the launch of PCGS Banknote, a premier third-party certification service for paper currency. Utilizing a tamper-evident plastic case that seals all graded banknotes within a safe, inert quality holder, PCGS Banknote certification will identify grade and protect your banknote for generations to come. To learn more, visit www.pcgs.com. Com. Dennis Loring is one of the hobby's leading experts on early copper coins. Having built a number of important collections for himself and at the service of others, Dennis brings an amazing reservoir of numismatic knowledge to bear anytime he speaks. We will dig a little deeper into his experiences next on the Coin Week podcast. Well, hi, Dennis. Thanks for joining me on the Coin Week podcast. My pleasure, Charles. You know, it's not every day that I get one of the foremost copper experts to spend a few moments with us talking about a career that touches upon all the major figures in the collecting scene in the 20th century, or at least the mid to late 20th century, uh, and that touches on the great coins in the copper series and has such a degree of expertise in dye varieties, pedigree, and the shape of the market. And not just uh, for copper coins, but pretty much the whole gamut of classic U.S. coins. So with that being said, that very lengthy intro, I'm excited to talk to you today. I greatly appreciate the comments, and uh, may I quote you? <laughs> yeah, ab absolutely. So, uh, Hubert, my assistant editor at Coin Week, and I, uh, we've been spending the last day or so just uh, poring over that great heritage sale of your 1793 large scent collection from 2012, which, you know, in numismatic terms is ancient history. But it's really interesting to, to sort of contrast and compare what you put together with what another great collector, Al Boca, did. And both of your sales were conducted, I think, within a year of one another. On another podcast, we talked to Al about his experience, but what was it like putting your set together and what were you trying to accomplish? Well, I had the opportunity to get some very, very nice 1793 cents. <clears throat> There's a collector uh, for whom I built a collection who specialized in 1793s, among other things. And when he decided to turn his interest to other things, he gave me the opportunity to buy his collection. So I actually ended up buying oh, about a dozen 1793s, um, sold the chain cents to Walter Husack and kept the wreaths and the caps for myself. And that collector was John McDonald, right? Correct. That is correct. He has or had the key coin, the Sheldon 7, of which there's only one nice example. So if the goal was to put together an, an excess set of 1793 varieties, um, only one person could do it at a time, and I'm incredibly fortunate that I had the opportunity, starting with his collection, adding some chain sense, doing a little upgrading when necessary uh, to be able to put that set together. That's one of the things I find interesting. I, I'm a voracious consumer of periodicals across the uh, coin collecting spectrum, both time and space, uh, and I've seen you advertise uh, a, a want for coins uh, where you're looking for that XF coin, and not just in the large scent category. 
Uh, what is it about these higher grade circulated coins that you find uh, so appealing that maybe makes them more attractive for you than mint state examples? Well, in no particular order, uh, the question of price, I could afford a lot more XF than I can in mint states. <clears throat> the fact that it has a little touch of wear, uh, it circulated, at least for a while. It did what it was supposed to do. Um, the fact that you can get some lovely toning on some of these circulated coins. So what are the uh, attributes or aesthetics of the kind of XF coin that you would be interested in when you're buying coins to add to your uh, your collection? What are you looking for at that grade? Because it's kind of a tricky grade, to be honest. It is. Um, I'm looking for a touch of wear. I expect there will be at an XF level. There can be no serious defects. Um, you know, a very minor scratch here it won't necessarily discourage it. You know, a bag mark here and there won't discourage it. There should be some gloss left to the surface. It shouldn't be totally flat. I don't expect blazing luster as an XF, but you'll often find a little bit of color peeking into the devices. Um, you should be able to hold it at arm's length, look at it and say, God, that's a nice looking scent. Um, basically, that's what I'm looking for is a nice looking sense. Uh, you know, over the last 20 or 30 years, uh, we've grown accustomed to the idea of a condition census. Uh, you know, top tier, top pop kind of coins. And, and I think it's important, probably of paramount importance even, uh, to preserve the finest coins. Uh, there's no doubt about it. I, I think it's not a controversial position. But I think at the same time, we, we do run the risk of devaluing or losing sight of the fact that coins are meant to circulate, and nice circulated examples are certainly a worthwhile pursuit for collectors. Um, in many respects, it's a more democratic way to approach the hobby, uh, to valorize people who build collections on their own terms and pick coins that are dignified because they have been circulated. My wife and I were fortunate enough to have acquired the Potato Field New England Sixpence. And you look at this little tiny coin, maybe the size of a dime, with a first scratch on it and a couple of scratches that are only a couple of hundred years old. And you realize this thing's been around since 1652, much of it buried in the ground. I mean, what sort of stories can it tell? Now, this is never going to be a coin that's going to appear in anybody's registry set. But I would certainly rather have it than an MS67 plus Morgan dollar of some comparatively common variety. So one of the other things that I find interesting about attending EAC conventions and talking to the old hands in the field is, is really just how social the experience is. In my opinion, copper coins kind of buck a trend that I see in the current market where you see more interest in varieties uh, in the series where the coins are more or less available to people, abundant, and, and maybe in some respects affordable. Uh, copper doesn't necessarily work that way. Uh, some copper coin varieties that are highly sought after can be very rare, and, and most people won't be able to afford them. And there, I think varieties tend to be of central importance to the uh, copper collector. The actual collecting of all the Sheldon varieties or all the Newcomb varieties has waned over the past few years. <clears throat> there seems to be much more interest in type, uh, in higher grade coins, you don't find all that many people trying to do a complete set of Sheldon numbers anymore. That, that's been a significant switch over the past 
oh, five or six years. Well, what do you think has contributed to the decline in interest in them then? Uh, I think the the current frenzy over condition is one thing. Uh, availability, of course, is always is something. The fact that it's tough to get these coins nice, uh, even a circulated coin. You can have ugly circulated coins and lovely circulated coins. Uh, and the lovely ones tend to disappear rather quickly. Um, I'm expecting the variety collecting will come back into the sunshine. A lot of these things are cyclical. But right now, registry seems to be the game. So if registry collecting for copper, you know, especially early copper, is in the ascendancy in the current market, do you think that the percentage of specialized collectors owning the most significant pieces has gone down in recent years and that now we see a trend where more generalists are holding on to some of the best coins? I think that's true. I mean, <clears throat> take, for example, uh, Brent Pogue. He had copper, he had silver, he had gold, um, but he had wonderful stuff across the board. So he was a generalist, but he was a generalist at the very, very top of the game. Um, you know, the deeper down you cut, the deeper down you specialize, the harder it is to get, you, as you were saying, top pop coins uh, or coins that are CC1 or 2 for the variety, especially in high grade. I mean, in copper, you have coins where the finest known is a good. Um, such things are not prob probably not going to entice a normal registry collector. He wants the best, but he wants the best to look like the best, not look like a good. In your experience, you know, outside of your own collection, whose uh, copper coin collection did you find most exhilarating to look at or witness being assembled? Well, I've been very fortunate in that I've been able to work with a few of the more advanced collectors and help them put together sets. John Adams, of course, immediately comes to mind, possibly the ultimate connoisseur. He had a magnificent collection of 1794 cents, uh, collecting by provenance of all things and then a magnificent numismatic library, and of course he just sold some terrific medals. Um, he, he is a researcher, he is a scholar, uh, he has tremendously fine taste in coins. So he's certainly one person that I would hold up as almost a model collector. And then you mentioned the name John McDonald. Uh, I was fortunate to work with him and help him put together some sets. Um, he knew his coins, he studied them, but he also felt comfortable buying coins if it was something that he wanted. I remember there was an 1811 over 10 large cent, new discovery, finest known that a dealer had. He put it out in his case at a show, and several EACers, who will remain nameless, uh, came by, looked at it, talked among themselves, said, boy, that's a beautiful coin. Let's wait till it comes down in price a little bit. Uh, I saw it. I immediately called John McDonald, who collected overdates. And I said, John, the finest known new discovery, 1811 over 10, is for sale here. He said, really? How much is it? I told him. He said, do you think that's a fair price? I said, yeah. He said, fine, go buy it. And the next time the EACers, who will remain nameless, went by the table, the coin was gone. That was very John McDonald-like. If he saw something, the price was reasonable. He said, let's write the check and get it. Um, not everybody does that. You know, no coin has ever taken my breath away looking at it in person like Alan Weinberg's 1793 Ameri Dot cent that was sold uh, last year by Heritage. I mean, that coin was amazing. 
Have you uh, seen Laura Sperber's Sheldon one? Yeah, I love Laura's coin too. I saw that. I think she had it at her booth uh, on display at this year's fun show. Uh, that is certainly also an incredible coin. So what coin in copper has had that effect on you? You know, that coin that you just, you look at it and you can't believe it exists. Well, one coin that was in a Stax Essex sale, if I remember correctly, it was an 1801 NC, NC1, and it was mint red. I think by today's standards, probably called a 65. Um, that that was quite a stunner. So where did that coin end up? Is it is it privately held, to your knowledge, uh, in a well-known collection? I don't know where it is right, right now. It's something I might be able to. I might be able to, to check some notes and get back to it later. I wouldn't want to do it in the middle of a podcast, see what other coins. There there aren't any that, that, that jump to mind. I, I can tell you a surprise coin that uh, that comes to mind immediately. Um, John Adams had arranged a trade with uh, Carnegie for some of their 1794s. One of them was a head of 93 that Walter Breen had seen when he did some research there and called it an AU-55. And John and I got it home, looked at it, I told him, you know, this coin needs brushing desperately. Turns out nobody had touched it for like 50 or 60 years, and the coin was mint red. And you just had to take that layer of surface dirt off, and the whole thing bloomed right in front of your eyes. Was the coin like fiery red, or was it kind of subdued? Nice subdued glowing embers. But it had original cartwheel on it. So, you know, one of the things that I think is going to be a highlight of this year's EAC is the fact that the Carnegie Institute is going to allow members of the club to uh, go into the vault and look at the clap collection. I guess this is the, the second clap collection. Uh, the first one, obviously, was uh, given to the A&S. I've had two great loves, large sense and seashells. Carnegie got the number one seashells and the number two large cents, and the A&S got the number one large cents. And I guess the uh, the A&S uh, held on to the clap coins uh, for as long as they could. Well, at least some of them. Um, what do you expect to see uh, with the Carnegie collection of claps coins? I mean, what kind of coins are in that collection? Uh, they haven't been shown since the late 1980s, I think. Possibly not. I... I saw them way back, oh, I'm trying to think, maybe early eight, late 70s, early 80s, but I haven't been there since. Um, you know, even though it's Clap's second line set, it's a wonderful set of coins. And uh, people will definitely enjoy seeing it. By the way, um, while, we were, while we were talking, I was able to grab my notes on 1801 NC1. The uh, MS-65 was lot 250 in the first Tom Reynolds sale by Goldberg. Oh, no, for, co for coppers, that, that was a great sale. So I think it was a year or two ago, uh, the EAC held a meeting at the World's Fair of Money. Uh, you were leading it, um, and uh, you were talking about social outreach, uh, how to bring people into the hobby through modern means. Copper collecting seems like it always has been a social hobby. I think as a, a group of collectors, copper collectors have been very good at sharing knowledge, uh, access to coins uh, and their collections, and uh, they've really been enthusiastic uh, for the social aspect of collecting. 
uh, one of the reasons I think Copper Coins has such a sophisticated uh, wealth of reference uh, materials is because of this uh, social interaction. Um, how do you see the next few years playing out as far as people taking, you know, the years and years of knowledge uh, from existing collectors and putting it into a transferable medium so that uh, collectors of future generations will be able to uh, benefit from the insights of uh, today's collectors and collectors who are in the process of retiring from the hobby. Sure. Well, I think it's a fine idea. I mean, the, the Newman numismatic portal uh, is is revolutionizing numismatic research, of course. I think the social part of early copper uh, is maybe its number one feature. I mean, I have friends that I've, I started collecting large sense. I started specializing in large sense in about 1960, 47, 57, maybe 1961, something like that. Um, and I, there are people that I've met in the late 60s, early 70s that I'm still friendly with today. Um, I just want to tell a quick story that really epitomizes to me what real large scent collecting is all about. I was doing preliminary work on revising Shelton's book, and there was a man named Willard C. Blaisdell in New Jersey who had a number of really nice coins. I wrote him. Uh, there was an EAC meeting going to take place up in Massachusetts, not too far from where I lived in Bo around Boston. And I, he said he was coming. I asked him if he would mind bringing a few of his scents. I'd like to see them for the research. So I got a call from him the evening he was due in, said, I'm at the Holiday Inn, Would you come, why don't you come on over? I did. He pulled out a couple of double-row boxes, which represented his entire first-line Sheldon collection, and handed them to me and said, why don't you take these home, work on them, and bring them back tomorrow? And this is a gentleman I'd never met. So what did you discover in those boxes? Some really nice coins. But the fact that he was willing to share that way, um, there are a number of, Dan Holmes is another one, may he rest in peace, who wanted to share his coins as much as he wanted to have his coins. Uh, you knew he was, he was coming to a convention, something that you really wanted to say, hey, Dan, would you bring along your Sheldon so-and-so? And you could count on the fact that he would uh, for the pleasure of giving you the pleasure of seeing it. Uh, there are many, many like that, and many of the 1794 specialists. Um, we enjoy each other's company. Uh, there's a group called Numis Nova down in the uh, D.C. area uh, that Wayne Holmgren sort of organizes or is part of, and they meet for dinner once a month and just talk coins. Bill Eckberg was a member of that group, and he's now living about 20 minutes away from me here in Florida. So we started the same thing here. We have a group call it the Coin Dinner Group, not a fancy name. And we meet once a month, rotating around hosting. Um, the host picks the restaurant and makes the arrangements, old Dutch treat. And so, again, we just meet for the social aspect of coins, and generally everybody brings something for show and tell, um, and we enjoy each other's company. Let me ask you a question, Dennis. One of the things about the coin hobby that's going to have to be reconciled at some point in the future, and that reckoning is probably already happening now, is that there's a sort of bifurcated coin market 
when it comes to the ability of people to buy coins based on whatever the price of the coins are, you know, I think there's a much larger segment of the hobby that's very interested in coins, but can't spend more than, you know, maybe 250, 300, maybe $500 on each coin. And then there's obviously that smaller sector that can go well beyond that. What is the benefit to somebody who wants to collect large cents or any type of coin for that matter, but can't spend more than $100, $150, $200 a piece uh, and becoming involved with an organization like the EAC? Uh, and is it a rewarding hobby for collectors at that level? I mean, what kind of advice would you give to them about how they should approach the collecting hobby? I put together a complete set of Sheldon, <clears throat> of Sheldon varieties and a number of the NCs back in, I completed, I believe it was 1974. Uh, there were a lot of coins in there that cost two digits and not three. Uh, I remember the first NC that I ever bought labeled as an NC, attributed as an NC, and priced as an NC. Uh, it was $250, thinking of what you just mentioned for $250. You can collect certain types of large cents on a pretty tight budget. I mean, the whole run of late days from 1840 to 57, you can buy nice coins. I'm not talking about mid-state coins or even necessarily AUs, but for, I think, 40 or $50, you can get a nice, extremely fine late-date cent, fine enough that you can tell the variety. If you want to go, go that game, you know, get... Groman's book and start attributing. Maybe you'll find something neat. Um, there will always be the people that can spend lots and lots of money. Uh, I think one of the good things about copper is that you can collect copper without spending huge amounts of money. And you get all the social aspects for free. I think that's the important thing. At least I would hope that no EACer would look down his or her nose at someone who can only collect good coins. Good coins are perfectly good enough for most of us. And sometimes, with some types of varieties, you have no choice. Absolutely. I mean, take a look at um, the Sheldon 79, the Reeded Edge. I mean, for quite a while, the best one known was the VG. I think, I think what the best one known, <clears throat> I don't recall if there's a fine or not, but of all the ones that exist, most of them are um, pretty poor, but still they are what they are. Right. So I think the hobby has its share of uh, characters and interesting people, uh, you know, uh, maybe some of them haven't exactly walked the line. Uh, but what's your most uh, interesting anecdote about one of the crazier characters in Copper history? Oh, we have so many. Uh Rather than point out a crazy copper person, I'm going to point out a crazy copper incident. Because I think of, of all the the things that have happened to me in the years I've been collecting copper, this one, although it happened decades ago, still sticks in my mind. There's a game called Old Scent Whist, which is described in the back of Pennywise. Oh, I'm sorry, of uh, Penny Whimsy. Um, you play, let's say you're playing 1798. You take your Sheldon, your first 1798 Sheldon 144, put it on the table. Your opponent takes his, puts it on the table. If you have the variety, it's worth one point. If you have one that's better than your opponent's, it's worth another point. 
So you score that one, say, two to one, put that away, take out your 145s. And then you can go the whole set, you can go any year, and whoever has the most points at the end wins. Three of us, uh, Paul Munson, Jack Storm, and I, were playing Old Scent Whist on 1798s. Sheldon 182 at that time was a fairly scarce variety. I think it was an R4, maybe a very low R5. And each of us had a VF30, which is sort of a borderline condition census for that coin. And we, we thought that was pretty good, so we compared them and studied them and decided they were so alike that we couldn't award a better than the other's point. So each of us got one point. At that point, Paul Munson started reaching for his coin. The three of them were sitting on the table. And he stopped about six inches above them, stared, turned to us and said, I don't know which one's mine. And Jack Storm sort of laughed and looked and said, wait a minute, I don't know either. And I looked, I couldn't. These three coins, high R4s, borderline condition census, were so alike that the three of us couldn't figure out which coin was whose. So we said, okay, what do you want to do? Jack. Pick one. Which one do you like? He said, okay, I'll take this one. And Paul Munson said, all right, I'll take this one. So I said, all right, fine. Yeah, this is good for me. And to this day, we have no clue whether we got our own coins back. So so you guys uh, basically just ruined that pedigree. The pedigree for each of those coins is now going to have to have a, a, a question mark beside it. I told Dell about that and drove him nuts. So how important is pedigree and provenance in the collecting of these coins? Uh, do you feel a special connection as a collector uh, with the collectors of the past if you know that the coin is from their collection? Well, I mean, I can answer you in two words, John Adams. Uh, especially in 1794, large sense, to a slightly less degree, another large sense, provenance is immensely important. Um, these coins had history. They were plated in reference books. They were owned by famous collectors. A brush and comb that you can buy for five ninety nine at Bed Bath and Beyond might be five thousand ninety nine dollars if it were owned by Elizabeth Taylor. So, if, coins aren't the only area in which provenance can have a very great meaning. But yeah, it, you were talking earlier about the socialization of the hobby. Um, that's part of it. This lets you socialize with the past as well as the present. Uh, I, I think it's very important. So what are you collecting now, and, and what are you trying to accomplish with your collecting? Well, I have a couple of collections. My large scent collection, I collect 1794s, only the common ones, Rarity 1, Rarity 2, Rarity 3. And I'm trying to get them all in, in XF condition, just to sort of put a, a matched little set of common 94s. I also have a couple of other large scents that are just interesting coins, uh, Jefferson Head, for example, uh, star diverse 1794, an 1868 large cent. You know, most people think large cent stopped in 1857, but they actually struck a few in 1868. Same design, but dated 1868. And I have one of those. And my wife, uh, who has become a numismatist uh, by means of self-preservation, uh, she found out fairly early in the game that if you marry a coin collector, you better learn something about coins. And she is gone now from not knowing what a large cent was to being national secretary of the American Coppers Club. So a great shout out to her. Without her, you know, none of this would have been any fun anyway. And I might add, she's uh, also a brilliant person in her own right. So 
Absolutely, but as some would say, then why did she marry me? To which I respond, <laughs> well, you know, we all have exceptions to the rules. But she and I have a collection of what we call interesting coins, uh, coins with stories, um, a Moffat ingot, for example, a Stella, uh, a Cal Quarter Eagle, uh, is this a New England, shilling, New England shilling and a New England sixpence? Just interesting coins. Earlier I was talking about that entry-level price point to copper. If you're going to give advice to somebody trying to, let's just say we're talking about matron heads or late dates, what would you advise them to look for when they're buying coins so that they know that they're buying a coin worthy of being in their collection? Try to buy coins that are as defect-free as possible. I would much rather see a collector put together smooth, even, nice-color VGs than corroded VS at the same price. Realistically speaking, when you sell your collection, you're probably going to want to get it slapped. Therefore, buy coins that will get into real sort of full-grade slabs and not detail slabs. Um, I think, frankly, the detail slabs are are killers, especially for early copper. Right. So you want something that's not pitted. Uh, you want something that's not obviously cleaned or corroded with rim dings. Uh, these are some of the things you're going to want to avoid. True. Well, I also think you know, Aaron Feldman, of course, is famous for the slogan, buy the book before the coin. I would amend that a little bit, and I would say get the auction catalog before the coin. And the good news is most of the auction catalogs are online now. But if you want to see what nice coins look like, if you want to get a sense of how they're graded, I mean, to me, there are two guys who stand head and shoulders above the rest in terms of being able to grade, catalog, describe, evaluate large sense. Um Alphabetically, they're Mark Borkart and Bob Grellman. Mark Borkart catalogs for Heritage. Bob Grellman catalogs for the Goldbergs. Get their catalogs and poof. You have the best reference books possible. You hear of a name collection that's supposed to have nice coins. Well, here's the catalog. Go online. Look at the enlarged images. You should be able to form an idea pretty quickly what nice coins look like. What does a nice VG look like? What does a nice VF look like? Because you have this reference material at your fingertips. I think one of the nice things about uh, Bob Grellman is that you'll see him often with a table at a show. And if you go to him looking for certain coins and, you know, at certain price points, uh, Bob's pretty good about being able to place coins in collections. And if he thinks the coin's good, he'll be upfront about it. And you'll be able to approach collecting with the knowledge that a very reputable, really well-educated enthusiast for coppers has assisted you in finding a coin. Uh, he's not simply market making, you know, he is just perpetuating the hobby the best he can. I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I have to uh, say that in a way, the large, large sense contributed to my, to my marriage. <clears throat> Back when I was dating Donna, we went to the New England uh, coin show, New England New Smack Association coin show. Hell of a thing for a guy to be taking his wife to a coin show coin show on a date makes you wonder and she was entranced because I was fairly well known there and people would come up to me with coins Dennis would you look at this large scent would you look at this coin and when the show was over she said boy 
everybody knows you there. You 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 must know something about this stuff. And it impressed to the point she kept she kept going out with me, and uh, we all know where that ended up. Uh, yeah, Dennis, I think that's actually great dating advice. Uh, always show the person you're interested in the thing that you're the best at <laughs> so that they'll have a good opinion of you. Work for me. Uh, well, Dennis, I appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk about coins and other topics. Uh, you know, I think the EAC show is probably my favorite show to attend. Not only have they been at fairly good venues in the last two years, there was a Traverse City and Dayton, or I think the last two. But you get actual experience handling coins, playing with coins, talking to collectors, true collectors about coins. Uh, and the deals aren't being made the day before the EAC. The deals are being made at the EAC. And I think that's pretty unusual in this day and age for coins. I, I think you're right. And as I said, you have people there who are newbies. You have people who've been collecting for five or ten years. Um, you have people who've been collecting for 60 years, and they're all resources. They're, you will find very, very, very few copper people who are reluctant to talk about copper, and especially when you have newer collectors coming up who may need a little bit of guidance, a little bit of mentoring. Um, you have, as you mentioned, people like Bob Grumman, people like Mark, uh, people, in, people who just brim over with enthusiasm, like a Chuck Heck, for example who are more than eager to help anyone who wants to travel this path. Uh, we were all innocents unknowing at the beginning. Uh, now we're guilty with the knowledge, but it's all fun. And I think that enthusiasm for collecting and collectors plays out in many ways. I remember just how touching the conversation was about Del Bland after he passed uh, at the EAC. And it's not unusual for the club to get together and just really think about all the good times. It's not just about the coins. It's about the experience of interesting people coming together to share a common purpose. And like you said, that culture of sharing, collectors are obviously very interested in building collections for themselves. But it's not much fun if you can't show people what you've put together, and show them how much of your personality is manifest in the coins that you chose. I think that's absolutely right. And I would mention, for people who want to share their coins, but don't feel comfortable taking them, the actual coins, especially the valuable ones, take a JPEG, put it on a flash drive, bring a flash drive. There are lots of people with computers all right, Dennis, I very much appreciate you taking the time, and I look forward to seeing you in a few months in Pittsburgh. I will look forward to it. You've been most kind. Thank you, Charles. You're welcome. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends. And remember, you can download all 120-plus episodes of the Coin Week podcast for free from iTunes. For Coin Week, I'm editor Charles Morgan. Until next time, happy collecting.